Good evening, everyone. I know there's a few people in waiting already, so it's nice to see that. I hope everyone's got a, a dram ready. It's Friday night. This is one of our softer side sessions. Um, let me know what you're drinking. And as we're going through tonight, um, get your questions in. Adam Cormie already. Glenn Farkless 12 got opened last night from the from the bunker. Is that what you're having tonight, Adam? Um, I am starting off with uh, Old Fashioned. Not made with tomato, made with a Canadian rye whiskey. Um, and that's a little nod towards my guest that I'll have to, on tonight. And we're going to be jumping into a couple of tomato drams along the way. So, um, Pascal's got a beer at the moment. No problem. You don't need to apologize for that at all. Um, a question that I am often asked in my job is, what is my favorite country to visit or what is my favorite city to go to? And it's impossible to really have an answer to that. Um, I guess the, the the better question would be, what city would you want to be in right now? Um, I'm very fortunate to get to travel the world, and so I have many answers to that question. But I have had a soft spot for Canada, and in particular, in, in particular Calgary, for a long, long time. It was one of my first ever trips at Tomatin way back in 2013. I was 22 at the time, and one of my first uh, trips was over to Canada for the better part of a week. Had an incredible time there. And I always thought that Canada, although I've got many city, cities around the world that I love to visit, Calgary is one of the very, very few that I would happily move to. Um, and a big part of that is the people. And my guest tonight is one of the people of Calgary, uh, Andrew Ferguson. Another reason that I wanted to bring Andrew on tonight, we've been talking um, with various people from various parts of the industry, um, a whiskey baron in Vanessa, master distiller, YouTubers. Um, everything, I, I could have very easily spoken to a retailer from the UK, but I didn't want to do that tonight. And the reason for that is that Canada as a market for whiskey, uh, a market for single malt whiskey is absolutely booming. And I think it's a market that's often overlooked when we think of the United States, when we look at France and Germany, but Canada has con consistently been growing and growing and growing. And my guest tonight, Andrew from Kensington Wine Market, has been at the forefront of that growth for a very, very long time. So, like I say, get a dram ready and we're going to have a chat with Andrew tonight. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing, Scott? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Now, I see we are in your your office uh, right. in the wine market right now. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, 2 o'clock uh, mountain daylight time here in Calgary. So um, I'm actually uh, still on coffee to a certain extent here. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, because it's been, uh, you know, things are a little different these days. And so there's been some long days and in addition to whiskey to settle down at night, I need to keep the caffeine and the blood during the day to keep me going. Yeah, quite right. I've got, uh, I weirdly enough, had some coffee bitters in the house. That's what's in my old fashioned. So I guess that counts, right? Yeah, and I'm curious, what, what rye do you have in that? So the rye I have, it's actually a bottle I um, was gifted the last time I was out in Canada. It's a stock and barrel. Oh, yeah, from Ontario. Nice. Yeah, and it was, a, I believe it was a store pick or a single cask. Um, so it's not a bottle that gets opened very often. It's at 61.4%, so it's not what I would normally okay. reach for for a casual drinking dram, but it's um, holding up well tonight. Yeah. And it was well, out with ice wine. That's my two Canadian things in the house right now. There you go. Well, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, people in Canada are still confused about is this idea of, of what rye whiskey is. And I think it's great that you've got a proper rye there. Like the, the, the guys at, uh, I think it's Stillwater Distillery who do the, yeah. the stock and barrel. Um, they are doing proper rye and it's probably the best product they make. I also love uh, the ABV on it because if you're going to do a Sazerac or even an old fashioned uh, with, with any whiskey, like if you're starting at 40, you're just, you're going to lose it. So yeah. it, you need something with a bit of punch there, and that they, they make a good rye. 
Yeah, I think I've always been a fan of spirit forward cocktails. I guess that's because I'm a fan of spirit strength. So it's nice to have that in the in the glass here tonight. So so what for you then? What is your what would be the difference between a rye and a proper rye for you? Well, yeah, and this is probably something that's maybe not as well known uh, in Scotland. I mean, your whiskey industry is so big and so powerful that things like Canadian whiskey maybe aren't even on the radar. Um, but in Canada, you can legally call a whiskey rye without any rye grain in it at all. Um, one of the distilleries in Alberta, Highwood, makes 100% corn whiskey and will frequently put rye on the label, and they're, they're, they're like legally entitled to do so. It's sort of treated as a colloquial term for Canadian whiskey in this country. Um, right. But, you know, it's a much lighter, softer style of whiskey. If you, if you want real rye, like Alberta distillers made right here in the heart of Calgary or some of the other ones out on the market, um, it's going to have a much bigger, oilier, spicier profile. And that's why it's going to stand up in a cocktail like a Sazerac or an Old Fashioned. And it's funny, like there's a bunch of big uh, rye brands, even in the States, like um, Whistle Pig, um, like Pendleton. Um, uh, there's Masterson's Rye as well, too, out of California. They're all Alberta distillers rye from Calgary, matured and then rebottled in the States as, as American rye. Right. So I think that definition of rye without even having rye grain in it would have the Scotch Whiskey Association running for the hills. They'd be terrified. They, like they would that. not be too happy, no. And, yeah. uh, you know, to be fair, some of the distilleries in Canada that are bottling, you know, Canadian whiskey or rye, there will be a small amount added for flavoring. Uh, it's a flavoring whiskey or it's going to add spice and depth to it. But the point is, like, there's, you know, a lot of flexibility there in terms of what can actually be classified as a rye. Yeah. And I think you made the point, it's maybe not something we're too familiar with here in Scotland. I think a big part of the reason for that is that mash bills are something that don't really exist in Scotland. It's either no, it's a green whiskey or it's a hundred percent malted barley, you know? Mm -hmm. So even people that are enthusiastic about single malts probably don't have much of a grasp over all the other things going on out mm -hmm. elsewhere in the world, particularly over in North America. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what you've just done there is for anyone that doesn't know you yet and is just tuning in, has highlighted one of the very reasons I wanted to have you on is an incredible knowledge of whiskey, uh, not just Scotch, not just Canadian, but a massive knowledge that we're going to try and tap into tonight. Stop. <laughs> yeah, you can pay me later. You can pay me sure. later. Yeah. So, you are now, uh, I believe this month, celebrating five years of owning Kensington Wine Market. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, yeah, I bought the business on uh, April Fool's Day of, uh, what is it now, 2015, during a, you know the first couple of months of the collapse in oil prices, which being in Calgary, a city that made its wealth and grew on the oil industry, uh, timing wasn't necessarily great, but things have gone fairly well. And, you know, it's kind of funny to me that I, you know, mark that fifth anniversary, um, you know, at the height of a worldwide pandemic <laughs> yeah. where most of the world's economy is shut down. Yeah. Um, so, but you know what, it's been amazing. Um, I've been here in total almost set, uh, like 16 and a half years now. Um, so I can't really almost remember a time that I wasn't here. Um, and even before I bought the business, I always had this feeling that I, that, you know, I owned the place in a way, like in an emotional way. I was, you know, very proud of it and very dedicated to it. So, yeah, it's been amazing that I've been able to 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 do that. And you know, five years on, things are still going strong. So, and I want to get back to that, um, particularly the current situation a little bit later on. But going right back to the beginning, before Kensington Wine Market, how did you? How was your interest first peaked in whiskey? Was it a Scotch or was it whiskey generally? Uh, no, actually, it, it was Scotch, um, and it was in university. A friend of mine, uh, we were working on an election campaign, introduced me to to Lagavulin in '16, and I'd never really tried. I mean, I'd probably done shooters of Jack Daniels and Canadian. You know, when you're a kid. 15, 20 years ago in, in Alberta, you would drink like Crown and Coke would be a popular, you know, drink in the in the bars. But I never really tried it on its own. And, you know, early 20s, uh, this friend of mine, Chris, introduced me to Lagavulin. 
and like that smoke sort of got me hooked. Um, and I had a, like an interest in it from that point on, but it was really um, when I started here, which was purely by accident, I've never had any intention of working in the drinks business that uh, I sort of developed a love for it more generally and really started to explore it. Yeah, similar thing to me, had uh, experiences and interests with before, but really only once I started getting into the industry and having an understanding and maybe more of an appreciation as what goes on and how that product is created that I really started to get passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've always had a big love of history. And one of the things I love about the scotch industry is there is such an incredible, and not just scotch, I mean, to be fair, the worldwide whiskey industry, there is such an incredible depth of history there. Um, and I love stories. I love um, interesting stories. I love stories about, you know, scoundrels and, and people who are just incredible characters. And I've always loved kind of weaving that in and tying that into the narrative that, that we tell here about whiskey when we're talking about it and, and, and romancing it to people. So what's your, what's your favorite story? What, what would be your favorite story to tell? Oh, you know, I, one of the ones that I used to love telling was about uh, uh, the founder of Glenary Royal Distillery. And I can't remember his name right now, but his nickname was incredible. He was called the Great Pedestrian. And he was given <laughs> that nickname because I believe he, he walked from his home, which was near Aberdeenshire, um, somewhere in that area, in that corner of Scotland, uh, all the way to London, on a on a wager that uh, he couldn't walk a thousand um, miles in a thousand hours, which is I think what the distance was, and the wager was something like a thousand guineas, just to kind of round everything out. Uh, but he did it. Um, in his sixties, he ran a marathon uh, to the king of king of England or king of Great Britain's home um, for dinner. Uh, he sent his his one of his servants ahead with a horse and a change of clothes so that he could change when he got there. And the next day he ran home. And this is a guy who was in, you know, in the 1800s, early 1800s in his sixties running marathons back to back. It's just sort of mind blowing. Yeah. And I think that is something that I love about the whiskey industry as well. But myself, I come from a history background like you, so I love tying those stories in. But I think what you've touched on there is the very human element of it. Mm -hmm. and throughout the years there's characters and things and even now i'm often told all, all the characters are gone you know the, the internet killed the characters because you could get caught for stuff now yeah. but i don't think that's the case i still meet plenty of people through whiskey that oh uh, and i mean let's let's be honest here you have uh the other scott at tomat and i would argue is quite a character in his own right yeah uh, I, I, I don't think anyone would argue that point um, absolutely lovely guy, but I mean, no, the industry is still full of them. And I think for me, one of the things that I love about it, I think Canada and Scotland have an interesting synergy in that we're, we're relatively speaking, fairly small countries. And I know Canada is enormous, you know, sure. Our population is quite a bit bigger than Scotland's. Alberta is about roughly the same, but the point is we, we are, we're countries that are very proud, but we don't kind of have an ego. And I think we really we love stories about unusual people, um, you know, uh, and, I, and I think that's one of the things that I've always loved about the Scotch whiskey industry is everyone is like, you know, very warm, very kind, very genuine. And even the most interesting characters, when you look back through the history of Scotch whiskey that that I love talking about are fall into this category. They're all, you know, regular people, but sometimes have just these incredible life stories. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you've touched on something there that I think it was probably myself and Scott that had this conversation that one of the reasons we enjoy coming to Canada so much is the people there mm -hmm. and that there is a similar disposition as we have in Scotland. And I think there's an aspect of it as we have a much larger southern neighbour. Yes. Um, who, and in both positions, maybe take themselves a little bit more seriously than we do up here. So uh, in Scotland, like in Canada, we are very, very... Um, we're fond of self-deprecating jokes yes. um, and putting ourselves out there. And, and and we enjoy that characters that you hear about. So the man you mentioned there, it almost sounds like a Phineas Fogg sort of around the world in 80 days type of character. For sure, for real. Like it's just too, it's almost too unbelievable to be true. Uh, but I mean, going back on that, like this one guy, uh, my, if my memory serves correct, he could ch trace his ancestors back to like even before William the Bruce. Um, or Robert the Bruce, rather. 
Yeah. And one of his great ancestors around the time of Robert the Bruce or slightly before was known to be the strongest man in Scotland. And I can only imagine what those competitions were like, you know, post Viking invasions, just before Robert the Bruce, I would imagine there were some fairly intimidating, uh, uh, hill people to say the yeah. least, uh, in the Highlands. Oh, I, I dare say so. I, they, they probably uncovered them quite often, but it makes me, it seems like a pretty turbulent point in history to have competitions, you know, yes. it was, it was probably proven battlefield uh, yeah. stuff going on there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you got into Whiskey at University, Lagavulin 16, which is interesting yeah. because a couple of people that I've spoken to over these sessions have referenced that whiskey. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it's at odds with what you think because quite often you would think that the first whiskey that people would get into would be something quite light, quite delicate, quite easy drinking. But I think yeah. on some of these heavily peated whiskies, heavily sherried whiskies, there is a real clear, identifiable hook. Mm -hmm. And you can identify a flavor and then maybe get into more um, subtle flavors as you progress. Yeah, I, th I think that's really what drew, kind of drew me in was this moment where you're like, wow, what is this? Like, where's this coming from? And uh, what's been interesting to see is I have a daughter just turned 20. Um, initially, she didn't, you know, and granted, she was for most of the time not, not, not of age. She wasn't 18. But she and her sister used to joke that when I died one day, they were going to sell my whiskey collection and become rich. And uh, she got a job in university with one of my friends at his liquor store down in Lethbridge. Uh, she got thrown to the wolves to talk about scotch one day and had to kind of learn about it. And I got a phone call later that night and Chloe said, dad, I've just tried Ardbeg Yugadale and I'm in love. And, you know, you'd think for like a fairly girly, you know, just barely over 18 year old young woman, uh, the idea that Ardbeg Yugadale is what kind of captures her attention and drew her in, yeah. it goes against what you'd assume. And, and I think when I started, you know, it's now almost like 16 and a half years that I've been in the, the, the drinks business. When I started, there was this really uh, unfortunate sort of stereotype or attitude that women in particular, the way to get them in was to serve them something really light, delicate, floral, and sweet. And even there'd be an argument for just introducing people, period, to whiskey. You had to start with uh, something very light and preferably a bit on the sweeter side. And what, what I came to understand very quickly uh, within a, you know, a couple of years was that you can't introduce any everyone at the same point. It, you're far better introducing them to a range and then yeah. seeing if there's something in that range that captures them. And if there's nothing, it might be that they're, they're never going to find a whiskey they love. But to start people off with, you know, Glenlivet 12 or, um, you know, Edward Hour 10, because, you know, they're lighter and softer. And that's where you need to start as a beginner whiskey drinker is really an unfortunate myth because I think it, it some people never actually fully get a chance to explore it because, the first thing they try, they don't like, and then they just never give it a chance again. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, I've, I'm within my group of friends. There's very few that actually enjoy spirits, let alone whiskey. And I think one of the things when I started getting into whiskey that I tried to do, and I, like you say, it's almost a disservice, was to focus on the light and easy drinking, even though that wasn't what initially piqued my interest either. But you're right that. And I, I, I'm glad to see that I feel that that misguided approach over men and women and whiskey, it seems to be dying down to a huge extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I've been doing this about half the length of time that you've been at Kensington Wine Market. And even when I started, and probably for the for the majority of the time that I've been at whiskey shows, it has been uh, prevalent. And I'm sure a lot of people would argue that it still is an issue. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to be dying down. It seems to be going away, which is great to see. Yeah. So do you find in your city, do you find in Canada that there's much more of a diverse um, whiskey community than there was when you started? Yeah, and I think one of the things that, you know, whiskey's become an important part of our business and really has been for um, part of uh, really the last 12 years or so. Uh, my my career here kind of started with uh, you know the the first 
um, big growth in single malts, which happened obviously in the 90s and the early 2000s. And uh, when I started, it was just a small piece of the business that we did here. And over time, it became the biggest. Like we now sell more whiskey in dollars than we do wine, um, which is certainly not uh, you know normal for most most liquor stores. Um, but uh, what concerned me, you know, starting about five six years ago, was noticing that a lot of the customers that we had that we were really relying on were getting older. And you know, how much longer are they going to actually be engaged in and buying whiskey? Um, and you know, those fears were in a lot of places misfounded or, or, or unfounded because what we've seen over time is this new generation of, of whiskey drinkers coming in, um, and it's been really encouraging for a couple of reasons. But then I think there's also some pitfalls actually the big the really big liquor companies is that these new generation that's coming up you can't really stereotype them they come from all walks of life all both genders all races and what's most interesting to me is that they're they're purely driven by like uh, quality they they want something that's good and they want something that's good value they're not as concerned about brand um, i mean there's still some of them out there who are but a lot of these people are now purely focused on, you know, I want to buy something good that's good value. Um, where there's a bit of a, a concern for a lot of companies is that some of these people, um, a big chunk of them, uh, seem to want to try new things. And this is something we've seen on the on the beer side of things as well, too, especially with craft beers. It's great that you make an amazing, you know, release of IPA, but the next time that customer comes in, they might be willing to buy something else from, from your brewery but they want to try something different because that one that uh, you know you had last time was great, but they want to try something else. Yeah, I think that is one of the core foundations of this, I guess, not just craft spirit, but craft boom, is that the audience is inherently um, trying to find the politically right word of saying it, but not loyal. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's... Uh, it is an industry built on um, trial and taking a journey and trying something new and then trying the next thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that the whiskey industry, particularly the smaller brands, are starting to uh, appreciate and they're starting to um, bring into part of their their strategies and things is that you can't just rely on your 12 year old to sell to the same person over and over and over again because there's another 50 12 year olds out there and someone's going to want to move on yeah right no absolutely and you know this idea that uh you know a lot of companies that are just trying to move their core skews that they think that works in certain retail environments and it works with certain customers but i think the people that are really into it that are drinking it because they like the flavors because they like you know, um, you know, they're just into that style of drink. They're they're increasingly not necessarily brand loyal, um, yeah. and they're looking for value. And you know, worries me when you still see you know some things escalating in price because you know that that just means that a lot of those consumers are going to switch to something else. And yeah. uh, there are some parts of the world, obviously, where this isn't true. I mean, certainly places like. China and Taiwan, you know, people are drinking things in a lot of cases because of what they are and because it's a, it's a status symbol, maybe because the brand is powerful and well-known. So that drives that buying decision. I, I don't think it has that much influence over here anymore. No, I would agree. And I think even some of the myths around whiskey that do still exist in some markets are starting to, or, or for the most part, have died off, uh, especially in the West a lot more. I was in Taiwan last year and uh, had many, many people coming up to me saying, if it's not dark, I'm not buying it, you know? And it's this under, it's just, I think for a long time they were told that sherry is good and bourbon mm -hmm. is bad. But I think at the same time, there's this, misled understanding that older is darker and therefore darker is better so um they're still behind in their knowledge but very very advanced in the level of the liquid that they're buying which is interesting to see um there's one question came in from david smith just asking what i'm drinking um david i'm having a a quarantine cocktail i guess you could say right now i've got a stock and barrel rye from canada um and I've thrown in some golden syrup, uh, lion's golden syrup. I didn't have anything else, but it's doing the job nicely. 
And I managed to find a little bottle of Fee Bitters, uh, I think it was coffee uh, bitters. So Fee Brothers, sorry. So threw that together and it's lovely. Andrew, are you still on the coffee there? No, um, I'm I'm ready to move on to some whiskey. The the coffee is now flowing through my veins. And uh, um, yeah, I've got a few, I pulled out a few tomatoes. I thought it'd be appropriate to to enjoy them. So we'll start off with a, a little bit of 12 year old here. So you mentioned something quite interesting there that in terms of dollars, Kensington wine market sells more whiskey than wine. So when yeah. are you changing the name? I, <laughs> we've been joking about that for a long time and, uh, you know, I'm not sure we ever will. Uh, the, the reality is the business started uh, 28 years ago next month uh, as a wine only boutique. Um, Canada is, you know, any of your viewers who are, don't live in Canada won't know, but Canada is a rather confusing place for alcohol. Um, most of the provinces are run by the government. Um, there's a bit of privatization in the West, in particular uh, Alberta, which is fully privatized where we are. And then BC, you have this weird hybrid public-private system that, um, you know, the, the, the less I know, the better. It's just hard to, to understand. Um, <laughs> But when we started, Alberta was still, in 1992, Alberta was still um, a state monopoly liquor system, and they decided to experiment with private liquor sales, and they did that by granting, um, over the space of about a decade, a number of um, licenses that allowed for wine-only stores, and the wine-only stores could bring in whatever products they wanted outside of this government system. And so we started that as a wine-only store in 1992, well before I joined here, about 11 years uh, before I started here at the shop. And two years into this experiment uh, with privatization uh, at our shop, uh, the government just decided one night, that's it, we're selling off all the, the liquor stores. And so Alberta privatized in, I believe, 94. And uh, so we've been selling whiskey and beer since the, the mid 90s, um, but it really took off, whiskey really took off um, in, a, in the mid-2000s, I started about 2003, and uh, that's when things really started to take off, and they grew like enormously for, for about a decade, and they're still growing now, but not, not quite at the same rate. But today, yeah, we sell more in dollars, more whiskey than we do wine. And I think that's right to tap into because I'm fortunate enough that I've been able to come over to Canada a couple of times and talk about whiskey, and even I don't have uh, even... I would say at best my grasp on the system in Canada is loose. Um, it seems that some provinces are very similar to some of the Nordic countries in that they're, they've got the state-owned um, stores. Am I right in saying that in other provinces, the government by extension decides what products are allowed and are not allowed to be sold? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh you know, even in the, the, the even in British Columbia, which, as I said, has a private public system, you know, you have one buyer for spirits who gets that, that one person in at least the government stores is deciding what products are carried. Um, you know, you look at Ontario and Quebec, I'm not entirely sure how their systems work. But again, it's through a bureaucracy, effectively. Um, the, 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 they're run at arm's length of the actual government, but they're effectively a bureaucratic retail system and what ends up happening is they end up primarily stocking and pushing the products of the biggest players so right. the diageos pernod ricards uh, of the world are the ones that get the most shelf space their product gets pushed and um you know they also drive even though they take enormous margins in these provinces they also are able to leverage that and drive better you know better deals with these big companies and uh, our market, which is incredibly different from that, is so decentralized, uh, but it's also open. You don't have to convince a bureaucrat to bring a bottle of whiskey into Alberta. You just have to pay the registration fee and fill out the paperwork and have an agent, uh, an importer. And then it's up to that importer to find retailers to sell it. Uh, one of the, th the funny little anecdotes that, that I love telling that one of my customers pointed out to me about three or four years ago, um, was in 2016, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, the LCBO, in a year, um, they put out this press release bragging about how they had 140 or 150 whiskeys in their shop. And I, I 
that seemed like a laughably small number, but I didn't really have a good sense of like, what, what did we have? And granted, we're just one retail space, maybe 3,000 square feet of retail at most. And that same year, we had sold over 1,400 different identifiable whiskeys. And I'm not talking like different sizes of the same thing, like distinct products. Uh, so in that one year, we had had our shop alone, it had 10 times the selection of the entire province of Ontario. Um, and it's not to say like the customers in those markets are always badly served. Like sometimes they get things, especially at the lower price point that are way better priced than you'd ever see them out here. But I think where they're really public or punished is on selection because you have this centralized buying. Um, it limits the, the, the availability of, of diversity. There's just not as much there. Uh, you can walk into my shop at any given time and we have over 800 whiskeys on the shelf. And that's not everything that's available in the market. That's just the stuff that we've decided to bring in um, right. as opposed to simply everything that's out there. Yeah. So you can have eight times what some states have just in your store alone at some point. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to look back around to that, but a question's come in from Scott Fraser. Now, I don't know if it's our Scott Fraser, but I hope it is because if it is, then it suggests that there's a story to the to the answer that he's already lined up. But he's asked, what's Andrew's favorite other province, A, for whiskey and B, for visiting? Oh, uh, you know, to be fair, it would probably have to be um, British Columbia. Um, mainly, and I think Scott's probably pointing this out because we, you know, get to party at the Victoria Whiskey Festival every year with good fun. Um, and, and truly also one of the best whiskey festivals in, in the world, just in terms of its organization and the people that are there, because, you know, all the participants are such like nice and down to earth people. Um, but I would say for my second favorite province would probably be BC. Um, you know, I also love Montreal and, and Quebec, um, just because it's so different from where I live and. Uh, there's some really cool clubs out there with some great people as well, too. And that's not to say that there's not great people in other provinces, too, but I'd say probably BC would be the one that I have the, the most fondness for. Yeah. it's I can see by looking in the comments that there's a lot of Canadians in tonight. And what's very funny about this is that the consensus is that the province that you're in is the one that has the worst uh, control board would seem to be the case, uh, just looking through the comments, except from Alberta. But Victoria Whiskey Festival, I totally agree. Probably, for me, I would say probably the best festival that I've ever been to. And what I really loved about it was that the, the festival element of it is maybe four or five hours. But before that, all through the day in the hotel, mm. there are masterclasses. So mm. rather than going to a festival for eight hours and then having to dip out while you're enjoying a conversation with a producer because you've booked tickets to a masterclass, mm. you go to three or four masterclasses during the day, mm. go off, get yourself some dinner, and then go to an incredible lineup of brands that evening. Mm. Um, and the organization of it's fantastic. I think what is done very, very well there that can maybe be learned from uh, around the world is the media engagement of the show. Sure. I, uh, I've i only been once. And just as a, a, a nod to the organizers, I, I arrive at reception and I'm told that um, tomorrow morning, if I'm downstairs by nine o'clock, uh, because it's my first time at the show, I'll get to go out on a seaplane across yeah. Uh, which was incredible. The most terrifying moment of that was when Peter Mackay was given the controls of the plane. Oh God! Uh, yeah. Myself and Dave Broom were were reaching for the parachutes in that moment. But well, well usually most people have uh, got a bit or nursing a bit of a hangover that morning too. So one hundred percent getting in that those little uh, those little prop uh, seaplanes can uh, you know sometimes uh, you know cause a bit of nausea, especially if you've, if you've not had a good sleep. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, well there's two things that I, that I have, not a phobia of, but for a brand ambassador, it's quite strange that one of my fears would be flying. I'm not, I'm not the greatest flyer in the world, but I do have an irrational fear of peers, mm. walking out onto a pier. That yeah. ties them both together. I've got yeah. a hand, I'm walking out onto a pier to get on a plane 
and mm. Peter Mackay's in the cockpit of it. That was a. I, I mean, I'm glad that I managed to survive that moment, but just an incredible, incredible uh, gesture for the show to do, and then it just sets you up for an incredible day. Yeah. No, and I, and I think the one other point that that should be made at this point too is that the the show is purely for charity. Um, there's no one making a profit off of it. The the, the organizers who put it in, 100% of of that is volunteer. Um, and uh, I think that's something that's always endeared me to it is that it's, uh, you know, maybe because of the restrictions in British Columbia, they don't always have like as many cool and rare and unique products as as they might otherwise be able to have. But it's yep. the environment and it's the community that it draws in. And uh, especially, you know, living on the other side of the Rockies where January can be somewhere between plus 20 and minus 20, um, going out to the coast where it's almost always above zero uh, and there, there's green grass is um, a, a bit of a welcome break from winter. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it was an incredible, and again, one of those things that ties back to me why I love Canada so much. But um, I've poured myself a glass of the 12-year-old here as well. Yeah. Um, for anyone that's just joining in now, we're having a little drama of the tomato and 12-year-old. I guess you could say our flagship malt being in the range for the better part of 20 years now, um, combination of bourbon and sherry casks. But overall, a very well-balanced and easy-drinking whiskey. You know, it's, I have to acknowledge from my end, I'm, I'm a bit spoiled in the sense of what we get to try, what we get to open and pour at tastings and events. And uh, sometimes it's nice to go back and revisit some of these, you know, flagship or entry level bottlings and remind yourself like how good they can be. Um, yeah. And, you know, again, palates spoiled uh, a lot of the time, but not everybody's got 300 or $600 to spend on a bottle of whiskey every single time. And yeah. uh, dollar for dollar, you know, things like the Tomat 12 year old, really good value. Yeah, I think that's, it's an interesting point. I myself, consider myself to be a whiskey geek so i will go out and buy bottles that cost a little bit more um than i would have before i started getting into whiskey but that's not necessarily what i want to reach for when i get home from work at five o'clock one night and i just want a, a drink to to enjoy uh it's you really have the tomato 12 year old in a glen cairn glass for example so um you normally having a basic tumbler or yeah great glasses I, I can't even remember the name of them but we've got a lovely punt in the bottom of them and i found out the other week i was doing a um it was actually a, a little instagram stream of the tomato 12 year old and i was recommending that people enjoy this with a half pint of a, a lager or a pilsner and it turns out that this glass is exactly half a pint so oh, wow. as good as it is for an old-fashioned it's also good to have a little beer with your whiskey with um, that's, a, that's a good uh, good feature. Yeah, but uh, actually after that old-fashioned, there's a huge amount of honey coming out of the glass on this one for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, soft spirit, um, you know, a bit floral, grassy, some nice citrus as well too. But yeah, not um, overpowering in any sense, like the sherry notes are quite balanced. Uh, yeah. There's enough vanilla coming from the oak from that 12 years that you know it's got a nice fresh creamy character to it too yeah and it's if anyone wants to know more about this whiskey we're, we've not actually been talking too much about um bottles uh, in these sessions this is probably the most we've talked about a particular whiskey but if anyone wants to know a bit more about this, a couple of weeks ago, I was on with Graham Yunson and he's in the chat tonight, um, but he was talking about how this is probably the most, the whiskey that gives him the most headaches in terms of pulling it together, just to get that consistency all the time. But yeah. um, so you, you, you mentioned there, and it's, I think when I first started going to Canada, it was always to Alberta because it very much is a, a good few steps ahead of the rest of Canada in terms of building the whiskey market um and, and you've been part of that for like you say now 16 years building the whiskey market in in calgary what would you say are the biggest differences now from 16 years ago I, well, 16 years ago um you know i'll be honest even back then we weren't even the major player back then that would have been willow park was the the dominant uh retailer um you know, we kind of sort of started clawing our way up 
um, you know, about, about that time, about 14 years ago. But at that time, what's interesting is how few bottlings were actually available. I, I remember probably about 14 or 13 or 14 years ago being pr like really proud of the whiskey selection I built here at the shop. And I think at the time it was 140 or 150 bottles and people would come in and look at that and be like, Oh my God, that is like incredible. You've got such an amazing selection. And back then, even I myself would be like, yeah, this is an insane selection. Like you won't find this anywhere. And I think now what I've seen is just this enormous explosion. I mean, obviously not every, distillery was bottling single malt back then. Um, maybe we would have single malt from 30, 40 different Scottish distilleries, but anything else would have been independent bottlings. And right. even then there was only a handful of those things like Gordon McPhail, Murray McDavid, um, Douglas Lang. Short of that, it was that and, you know, the best known single malt brands, at least uh, at that point in time. And maybe you'd have two or three or four, um, expressions within one distillery, but their things were still very limited. And I think the big difference now is you have uh, must be at least 50 to 65 of the Scottish single malt distilleries with bottlings on the shelf now, or at least ones that you can put on the shelf. And then you also have even more independent bottlers than there were back then too. So I'd say the big change now is just the variety is, is far greater than, at any time before yeah and talking of independent bottlers you am i right in saying that you have the uh scotch malt whiskey society in canada that's in yeah, the white market we're we're one of their four part uh four partners we were their first partner here in, in canada and so we that's a big chunk uh, of our whiskey selection and a big big part of what we do we, we typically launch seven new whiskeys a month um i mean occasionally there's a rum or a cognac thrown in there but for the most part uh, whiskeys. And then we've also always done a lot of work with uh, Cadenhead, um, Gordon McPhail has been a big part, Signatory, uh, and others. Um, we're, we're really open to doing business with anyone. The, the main char characters we're looking for, though, are that products be good and as much as possible good value. Uh, yeah. One of the other things that I think has really changed that sets our market apart now from maybe some of the newer ones is that um, people have a sense of what something should be worth and you know marketing departments at distilleries don't always um share the same view i think we should say and uh as a result you know the independent distilleries who've kept their prices you know more approachable plus you know some of the independent ballers a lot of that has driven our whiskey sales the last few years is people are, are still looking for good value good quality at a good price and yeah. um yeah that, that's that's probably the biggest difference the other one that's kind of you know funny to look back like i, I remember back when you could buy port ellen for 160 dollars a bottle um back when 40 year old single malts from independent bottlers could be had for a couple hundred dollars and i mean now that's just unthinkable um we used to sell strathyla 40 year old from gordon mcphail this dark as coke whiskey i think it was 175 or 180 dollars and people would complain about the price <laughs> and you know now people would probably pay 10 10 20 times that yeah uh, for that style well i mean i think as well that and doc uh, mccallum fine and rare has just mentioned in the chat yes many decades ago i think something that's even more recent is the boom of likes of japanese whiskey you know mm -hmm. when i started in 2012 so let's go to 2014 it would have probably been i was over in norway and our distributor distributor out there had bottled a cask of karazawa and had offered me um bottles for i think it was around about 150 pound a go and they said you know you can have six if you want and i was stupid enough at the time to go nah it's okay I'll, I, that's that's a bit too expensive for me and it, it was at the time i was still uh yeah. i would only been about 23 24 at the time so it was still expensive but if i could go back to any moment and change my decision it would have probably been that time that would have been uh yeah. the house paid off by now <laughs> well the the interesting thing with japanese whiskey um and you know a lot of what's coming out right now i like to call japanese-ish um because <laughs> people don't really understand that just because it's 
says Japanese whiskey on the bottle or that was bottled in Japan, that it's actually Japanese whiskey. Right. You know, even the big Japanese companies like Suntory and Nika are sourcing for at least their blends and their blended malts, some of their, their whiskey from Scotland or, you know, even the United States, Canada and Ireland. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's this sort of explosion of, again, what I like to call Japanese-ish whiskeys where, you know, the whiskeys maybe just touch Japanese soil, get bottled and then re-export it out. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a reason these companies own Scottish distilleries, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it's the reason that we were originally bought by a Japanese company, you know, since 1984-85, we've been owned by Takara Shutsu. And the reason they bought the distillery was for the supply of stock to go into their brand at the time, which was King Whiskey. Mm -hmm. um, we, we were made bankrupt. They didn't want to see the loss of supply. That's not the case anymore. We're not sending any whiskey to Japan for bottlings, but it's still a big part of the industry out there that I think is not necessarily hidden, but not talked about. Yeah. No, I, I remember even being uh, at Ben, ben Riek probably about a decade ago, and uh, you know, Stuart Buchanan showing us around and out in the yard where they have all the barrels waiting to be filled, there were these blue plastic drums. And I said, well, Stuart, what are those? He said, oh, that's for bulk spirit. I was like, bulk spirit? He's like, yeah, you know, it's going to India. We send bulk spirit there and then it gets, you know, matured and blended in with Indian whiskey. Yeah. Um, so there, there's obviously you know, for a lot of distilleries for a long time, that sort of thing pays the bills and yeah. might might pay the bills going forward. I mean, it, I don't think it's a secret that a lot of companies overestimated their future demand over the last decade, you know, assuming that the growth curve for single malts would continue forever and that, you know, blends would maintain their position forever. And I mean, obviously those were probably not the wisest of predictions, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of distilleries that are probably sitting on a lot of young single malts that yeah. maybe there's not enough market for. And I think one thing that I always go back to, and it's something that's always an afterthought, and I, I quite often forget to mention it, and then I'm left wishing that I'd said it to that person, is that you go to the Japanese thing, for example, and say you've got a Japanese blended whiskey where a splash of that liquid has been made in Japan and the rest has been shipped over, blended and bottled. doesn't mm -hmm. make it a bad liquid. It's made no. by a reputable distillery somewhere in the world. It's mm -hmm. taken to Japan and is blended by uh, a master blender in Japan. So mm -hmm. Greg from Greg's Whiskey Guide is in here. And I met him in, it was, I believe, Paris last year. And um, later that evening, I tried a Japanese whiskey that just so happened to be one of the nicest bourbons I'd ever tried. It was very clear that the liquid in that bottle was 90% bourbon, yeah. but it was delicious. Yeah. No, there's a, there's even one out right now that uh, from a producer called Shinobu that I think is phenomenal whiskey. And it's a 10-year-old blended malt that they've finished in Japanese oak Miznara barrels. And, you know, is it strictly Japanese? I mean, yeah, sure. But the point is, with good whiskey, absolutely. I think it's a, I think it's a, a great whiskey. Yeah. Um, Graham Fraser has just asked, wondering what Andrew's best-selling single malts are and other spirits. So let's start with uh, single malts. What are your best sellers at the moment, Andrew? Oh, you make me make make me feel bad here in front of Scott. But uh, I, Tomatin's always done well in our store. But I think the one that would probably shock most people that for distillery bottled single malts. Um, our best seller for probably the last four or five years has been Aaron. And uh, the major reason for that is that just even in Canada, they're a relatively un, not well-known brand. And we've kind of had them to ourselves to a certain extent. Um, their 18-year-old is still $128 on the shelf, which is great price. They bottle it 46%, which I'm a, I'm a huge fan of. Um, and uh, we sell a ton of it. Um, you know, the rest of the time, what our best sellers are would really depend on the casks that we're bottling. Um, our best selling whiskey a couple of years ago was the Tomatin cask that we did that was finished in uh, PX Sherry. And part of the reason for that is there was 620 bottles of it. Right. Um, you know, that 
what's selling tends to change from time to time. Um, outside of the small and the, the you know medium and independent Scottish distilleries, independent bottlings are really what's driving it. And the reason for that is there there's something that most businesses don't properly understand. They don't understand that the level of quality can be inconsistent. So it's about selecting the right bottlings and knowing what you what you have. Um, and the other weird one that's out there now that, that I'm a fan of, and I'm not sure if there's anyone else that is too, but we've been seeing a lot of these weird blended malts over the last few years that um, may or may not originate from McAllen and Highland Park. And the prices on them are ridiculous. And if you can get past the fact that it doesn't say single malt on the label, um, some of them are incredible. So um, Aaron does well, Tomatin does well. You know, we, 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 have a, we work really well with Springbank and Ardbeg. Um, there's a lot of brands that do well. But for me, we, we love selling new and interesting and I would say especially weird stuff. Like we love it when there's something that's weird and good priced and tastes great. Yeah. Uh, and that's something we can talk about. Well, I think, and then thank you for saying that Tomatin's one of them, but there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that Aaron's an incredible liquid. And it's something that I've been able to enjoy a lot of the time as well. But I think my experience of having been to Kensington Wine Market is that people are genuinely going there because you're offering something that other places don't. Yeah. Um, but I just feel like should, I'd be remiss without throwing out uh, throwing out a little nod to 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 George Grants and Glenn Farkless too, because we have, we sell a ton of their stuff as well. Yeah. Um, uh, but again, these are these like. Medium, sorry to interrupt, but like these medium-sized independent companies, companies that aren't part of big multinationals um, are the ones that we tend to work best with. Yeah. And before moving on, because I do want to talk about single casks um, mm. with you, but the other part of that question was other spirits. So sure. out with whiskey, what's doing well at the moment? Well, I mean, if, if we take scotch out of whiskey, um, you know, obviously bourbons does fairly well, though. I mean, there are challenges in Canada. I mean, a lot of the bourbons just either don't leave the States or they leave in small quantities. Um, Canadian whiskey and Canadian craft whiskey has been trending up. And I think it's still got a long ways to go because a lot of what's out there is very young. Um, gin does very well in our shop too. That would probably be the next the next biggest category outside of, of the family of whiskey. Um, but it's certainly not quite like it is in the UK. Um, the gin boom is, is it's here and it, it's mainly driven through cocktails. Right. Um, what we've, you know, we do a bit of tequila and mezcal, but really 98% of the spirits we sell by volume in the store is whiskey. Uh, that's kind of our bread and butter. Yeah. Now, before I go on to ask you about single casks, I'm going to pop open a bottle that, I know you've got the bottling behind you there. I've got a cask sample of it, and that's that 21-year-old that you've got. I'm going to pour myself a dram of that. Yeah, this guy. Yeah. Now, for everybody who is watching that is not in Canada or the United States, we are sorry. Um, this whiskey that we're opening right now is a limited edition that was bottled um, exclusively for North America. I think probably in 2018 now, mm. 21 years old, fully matured and fertile bourbon barrels. So it's that big vanilla, American oak spice, coconut hit. Um, if you are a fan of well-aged bourbons, this is a great, great whiskey for you. But um, how's, how's your experience with this whiskey been, Andrew? Well, you know, this is a style that I really love. Um, uh, you know, American oak whiskey, uh, single malt, especially left to, to, to mature for long periods, even um, refill. And like before even specifically just addressing this one, some of the whiskeys like year old, 30 year old and the 36 year old, these probably like second fill whiskeys that have been left for a long period of time. Those are my absolute favorite whiskeys. Yeah. Uh, and it's because you get these very delicate, soft, tropical fruit tones developing. And the Tomatin 21, I mean, the bourbon notes in this, the American oak are a bit bigger, a bit richer, uh, but it's still elegant. It's still soft and, you know, has tons of fruit on the palate. Yeah, I think as well. So a couple of things to point out. 
Gregor McQuee is in the chat tonight and he's saying the US exclusive, I need to go open mine. Give me two minutes. Yeah, Gregor, that's the one that we're on. So go and enjoy it. Gregor yeah. also mentioned earlier on that he thinks I'm getting close to needing my first quarantine haircut. Um, oh, yeah. If I wasn't doing all these live streams, I would be bald right now. I would have just taken the clippers off it. But um, yeah, I think it's it's coming at some point. I think I might have to have to bite the bullet on that. Um, and th there was um, something else in there as well that I had seen. I was going to have a quick look, um, but actually, the, the the comment that you made. This is almost halfway between those younger cask influence driven whiskies and older oxidized driven whiskies. You know, it's first fill, so it's still got a lot of the cask, but when I when I take a nose of it, the first thing I get is that big American oak spice, that coconut. But just as I'm about to move away from the glass, there is that burst of tropical fruit. Um, and then, like you say, on the taste, it's it's really big there. But it's lovely, lovely stuff. Um, this was actually released um, in the one-year hiatus that I had away from Tomatin. So I don't get to try this very much when I'm not in, uh, in, in North America. But... I've got a cask sample at home right now, so I'm quarantine's great for me. Yeah. So before we go on to talk about casks, let's talk about the, the elephant in the room, which is the current situation. How have you guys been hit during Canada and at Kensington? Um, so you know, we're we were still operating, which we're extremely grateful for. Um, Canada's again, you know, for people who don't know much about or have never been, Canada's the size of Europe but has, you know, half the population of the UK. And, uh, you know, there's different pockets throughout the country. I mean, certainly parts of, of Eastern Canada, like Quebec and Ontario have been hit very hard. Uh, Montreal in particular, which is, is really hard to see. Um, Calgary is one of the hot spots. It's certainly out West, but uh, things are still, you know, our hospitals are still holding up okay. Um, you know, I mean, we, we do, nor and normally, uh, one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is uh, we might not have, we, we don't have every bottle in the store open at all times, but chances are if my staff are going to sell you on something, if they're, if you come in and ask for their advice and they recommend, you know, Tomatin 21, um, if we have an open bottle nine times out of 10, you, you'll be offered the opportunity to sample it. And that's a big part of our business. It's a big part of my philosophy, which is not just that, I want you to take my word for something, but um, I want you to decide for yourself because my palate and your palate might not be the same. And if I tell you something's great and you don't like it, then that might interfere with uh, your buying decision next time. Maybe you won't shop here. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we do do tastings. I mean, we've kind of put a pause on that for a while, uh, mainly because we just don't want to be encouraging people to, to come and hang out. Um, normally we'd love them to come and hang out. Uh, unfortunately, this is not the time to come and hang out at the store. We're uh, trying to be a, a part of flattening the curve and as much as possible, we're encouraging people to, you know, come do a curbside pickup or we're delivering free across the city of Calgary. If you, if you order $50 or more. Um, and the reason for that is not just, um, to win the business, but really because we want to encourage people to stay away so that they can come back sooner um, so that we can get back to doing tastings and festivals sooner um, than later. Perfect. Perfect. I think, I think everyone would be in agreement with that strategy as well. So, um, mm -hmm. but as I mentioned, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about because You've done an incredible job with them over the years and it's become mm -hmm. a big part of your business as you mentioned single casks right we are often asked at tomato if we offer single casks and i think there's there's two things going on there mm -hmm. sometimes people are asking if they can buy a cask of new mixed spirit and allow it to mature for mm. however long and then bottle it as they want and that's not something that we offer anymore we used to offer it but that was mm -hmm. a long time ago and we stopped that and it's purely because we want a degree of control over the quality of liquid that we're mm. producing because it has if someone's first introduction to tomatin is a cask that you've had maturing and you've bottled it maybe too early or too late it's mm -hmm. not going to reflect what we want to do 
what we do offer though is single cask bottlings for stores clubs and things like that and and you've done some in the past yourself so i guess what i wanted to get from your side i i know the benefit of single cask bottlings as a drinker and as a producer mm-hmm. but from the view of a retailer what is the benefit of single casks for you you know it's it's there's a there's a number of different benefits to it and uh, in particular, if you want to take the business angle to it, which has itself has several sides, one of which is, you know, working with people that you like working with. Um, you know, I may love the, the Tomatin 12 or the 18, but it's very difficult for me to move a volume of that because you can buy it at other businesses. It's not restricted. It's not limited. Um, buying a cask when that's an op- opportunity is a way of us being able to do more of a volume business with certain producers. Um, the other advantages of doing that uh, are, you know, A, it's something that's unique to us and it's special. And if people want it, they have to come and buy it from us. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of what's driven that um, opportunity is being able to offer something that no one else has, not just in Calgary or in Canada, but if we're buying the cask in the world, we have the one cask of this anywhere and if you like it or if you want to try it you have to come see us for it um one of the things that that's worked so well with that program for us is the fact that we're a small business and this is something that you know when people come visit us for the first time and they enter the store and they see how small it is they're kind of shocked because you know we have this virtual presence on either social media or online where we seem to be this dominant player but in reality we're a single small independent retail shop that just happens to, to shout really loud and you know do things to get people's attention. And because we're small, when we started doing casks 15, 14 years ago now, um, we had to be extremely choosy. If we picked a barrel that was you know A, too expensive, or B, the quality just wasn't there, it would be hard for us to sell it. And then that becomes a roadblock to buying the next one. And a lot of my competitors here in the market, I know will frequently rely on the producer or their importer, you know, just get me a good cask because they're a huge company and they can, you know, spread it out over a dozen or a hundred shops. We don't have that luxury. So if something's not good, um, it's going to be hard for us to move. It's going to become a liability on the business and it's going to keep us from moving on to the next one and needing to, 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 be extremely careful in our selection has meant that we've had a history of bottling very good casks. Um, sometimes we push back very hard on price to get it to where we feel it needs to be. Um, but what this has kind of achieved over the last decade is a, is a level of trust. Um, we have customers who obviously don't live here, but will travel out here on business to pick up bottles and they don't have the luxury of buying uh, or, or sampling the whiskey before they buy it. But when we put our logo on it, there's there's a trust there that they know we wouldn't bottle a cask for a shop if it's not good. And, you know, we now probably go through about 12 to 15 casks a year of various different scotches, some, some bourbons. Um, and we're able to do that because when things come in, people buy them because they know that we're always trying to achieve the best price, good quality, and that we would never buy a barrel simply to buy it it's always got to be good it's a i think an element of one hand washes the other there you know you can have a cask and people can only get it if they come to you but at the same time they're only going to come to you if they know that there's a quality there and for those of you in the chat tonight that aren't aware of andrew before or are maybe not in canada i think the thing to point out is that andrew's very much been at the forefront of the whiskey market in Canada for a long time. Now you're a keeper of the quake now as well, Andrew, that's right. Yeah, actually quite a, for almost nine years, I think it was eight or nine years ago. I went to Blair castle and uh, I think it's, it's kind of lost to the mysteries of time. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I know that was, uh, that was quite an honor um, when it happened. Um, and uh, you know, it's funny. I haven't been back to the banquet since I did go to the American one last year. I got invited down and that was fun. Right. Um, but I uh, know I'd, I'd, I'll have to have to try to find a time to, to get back one of these years. 
Well, you're getting close to that 10-year mark that you need to be to be a master, aren't you? So that, that well, might be the return. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that those are obviously pretty hard to come by. And uh, if it happens someday, great. You know, I'm, I'm not really holding my breath on it. But, yeah, uh, yeah we'll see. I mean, there's, there's, there's a certain amount of politics, I think, that goes into that, too. And, um, you know... I, I love what I do. It's an honor. It's an honor to have it, and uh, um, yeah. It's uh, and I think as well. You know, you're over in Scotland so much anyway. Just visiting distilleries to tie in a dinner as well. Yeah. Um, it, I, I don't know if that's more difficult, or it, should you just reschedule your trips over to Scotland? Yeah, we'll have to. Certainly, maybe next year I'll have to plan it so that I can attend a banquet because. Uh, um, you know, it, it, it was good fun and, uh, you know, there's not enough uh, excuses to put the kilt on, so. Yeah, yeah, you need more. And now that there's no sport right now, there's no rugby or football for us to even wear a kilt to. So um, and weddings have been cancelled, which is dreadful as well. Now, one of the questions that came in and it kind of taps into some of the emails that have been going back and forth before this is, so you're telling us there's a tomato cast coming, Andrew? I... <laughs> Yeah, we've we've wanted to do another one for probably. This six is the months. sales pitch right here. This yeah. is me doing my job now. <laughs> and I'll I'll be honest. One of the trouble problems we have being a small business is um, sometimes it's hard to like put aside the time to to plan what's next. But uh, yeah, I certainly hope there'll be a new one for the fall uh, or failing that. You know, January of next year. Um, obviously, with you know the pandemic situation around the world. Um, we've spent the last four or five weeks trying to figure out how to keep operating our business. And sometimes that's a hourly or daily, uh, uh, challenge. Um, but yeah, we we're always looking for new things. We, we have looked at some samples. I have an idea of what we'd like to do, but, uh, yeah, we'll definitely be balling another cask in the near future. Uh, pr you know, provided, uh, to Matt and, uh, cease fit to, to part with something for us, which I'm sure they will. I'm sure we will. I'm sure yeah. we will. I think, um, I, again, our side of the situation is the, the whole bottling hall situation right now is slowing everything down, but right. we will hope to get something. Well, there, there will definitely be samples with you soon, but well, that's good. Uh, get a bottling out there to you as well. But um, that has gone over the hour mark now, Andrew, and I know you're still in the middle of the working day, so I'm going to uh, let you get back to it, let you get back to work. I'm going to say thank you to everyone for tuning in tonight, even though there was a little dropout halfway through. Thanks for sticking with us. And um, Andrew, thank you for your time. Slanjava. Slanjava. Thanks a lot, Scott. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, certainly wish everyone uh, at Tomatin and in Scotland the best and hope that we get back to some degree of normality and that I can plan a trip back to the, the whiskey motherland some point in the near future here. Likewise. Look forward to getting over to Canada. Cheers. Okay. Thanks, Scott. Cheers.